Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Forms of Concentration. We're not talking about the mind today, but of internment and ghettos, of settlement camps. Our music today comes from the 2012 album Kutan by Adrian Terrazas Gonzalez. Born and raised in Chihuahua, Mexico, Terrazas Gonzalez is a composer and multi-instrumentalist who attended the University of Texas, El Paso, and now lives in Los Angeles. We're listening to the title track. Today's conversation focuses on the history and origins of concentration, a form of biopolitics that seeks to manage and structure the movement of social groups in a predictable manner. Modern forms of concentration have become a nearly ubiquitous force of social structuring, from mass incarceration in the United States to the confinement of refugees in settlement camps the world over. We can see the logic of concentration at work. The most prevalent and commonly recognized form of concentration in modern history is that of the 20th century concentration camp, with its most brutal and horrific manifestation during the Holocaust of World War II. Historians and theorists have often identified the origins of the concentration camp with the Cuban War for Independence, when the Spanish colonial officer Valeriano Weyler y Nicolau ordered rural civilians to report to the nearest city that had a garrison of Spanish troops. This historical account suggests that Spanish colonialism in Cuba provided the condition of possibility for the concentration camp to emerge and to spread to different contexts around the world. However, our guest today, Daniel Nemser, in his book Infrastructures of Race, Concentration and Biopolitics in Colonial Mexico, raises the important question. If Spanish colonialism was the camp's condition of possibility, why would it have emerged only at the end of a long colonial project that had already endured over four centuries? Nemser instead extends the history of concentration back into the very beginning of Spanish colonialism in Mexico, tracing the forms that it took under the auspices of the colonial project. In doing so, he likewise shows that the colonial implementation of concentration not only produced a social order through population management, but also instituted this order through the production of race itself. Nemser looks at the various techniques of colonial governments that Spain implemented, centralized towns, disciplinary institutions, segregated neighborhoods, and general collections to demonstrate that race is not a pre-existing identity, but is produced and subsequently experienced through forms of population management tied to concentration. What is most striking is that what Nemser describes of 17th century Mexico City is a mode of organization nearly unchanged over those four centuries. The colonial project of empire is alive and well in cities in the United States. And there is something very familiar in the ways that colonizers describe and denigrate local populations. We'll also learn of a food riot where Spain lost control of the center of the city for one day, and the methods undertaken by the colonial government to regain and maintain control. Daniel Nemser is an associate professor of Spanish at the University of Michigan, where his research and teaching focuses on colonial history in Latin America. And now, forms of concentration. Dan Nemser, in conversation with Cole Nelson, on Interchange, on WFHB.
it's sort of, of course, nearly impossible these days to avoid coronavirus in any sort of conversation. Um, so to, to really begin with, I was curious, uh, since your book is focusing on forms of concentration in colonial Mexico, I'm just interested right at the start to hear how you've been thinking about concentration as it's been put into effect um, as a form of governance under uh, times of coronavirus? Well, I think, I mean, in some ways, I'm always hesitant to kind of try to talk about the contemporary relevance of the research that I do. Um, you know, it's, I'm studying a, a time period that's um, so distant, right? Um, but I think there's uh, certain ways in which um, the book, uh, which tries to offer a history, a kind of a long history of concentration as a technique of governance and colonial governance in particular, um, can shed light on why states turn to this, these kinds of techniques, concentration practices. Um, and I mean, if you think about it, the, the way that, or some of the ways that um, states have responded to the coronavirus have to do with, you know, quarantine, uh, stay-at-home orders, uh, travel bans, you know, all of these policies in, in certain ways have to do with managing populations and keeping them in place. Um, and so in a way, if you look at the, I mean, the, the, the argument would be if you study the history of these techniques and try to figure out where they come from um, and what are the conditions that in which they became necessary and started to be used and how they changed over time, um, it can help you see and understand uh, both why um, they continue to be so important for states today, um, but also, you know, what, what kinds of uh, effects they produce what kinds of subjects they produce, what kinds of violence do they produce at the same time as they're kind of trying to prevent, you know, death and stem the spread of the disease. With regards to the, the different forms of concentration that you look at, uh, congregation, enclosure, segregation, and collection, which aren't necessarily um, entirely individualized forms or entirely separate uh, unique forms in themselves um, that are implemented in, in different times, um, I was wondering if you can sort of take us through what each of these each of these forms are and how they relate to concentration, um, and then we can sort of get into the specifics of how each is implemented uh, specifically in colonial Mexico. Okay, um, so basically, I guess maybe to to take a step back, the book what it tries to do is kind of trace a long history or genealogy of concentration as a technique of colonial governance that emerges in the 16th century um, in colonial Mexico, but also in Latin America more generally, which was colonized and governed by Spain. Um, and Spain was in charge of uh, or ruled Mexico um, from the 16th century to the, um, to the, to the 19th century. Um, so about 300 years. Uh, and Spain also continued to govern other colonies in Latin America until the end of the 19th century. Um, so uh, what the, the book tries to do is look at some of the different forms that concentration took over the course of that 300-year history, um, specifically in colonial Mexico. Uh, the first form that it looks at is called congregation, which is basically a sort of centralized town into which the indigenous population of colonial Mexico were forcibly uh, centralized. Um, the second 
form that I look at is uh, called recogimiento in Spanish, uh, which means something like enclosure. And basically it had to do with um, disciplinary institutions, sort of like a combination of like a prison, but also a school um, into which uh, supposedly mixed race mestizo children were, uh, were inserted. Um, the third form that I look at is the segregated neighborhood, uh, which were supposed to be how the colonial government organized um, the space of Mexico City and other big cities. Uh, so Indians, Indians were supposed to live in certain districts and non-Indians were supposed to live in other districts. And so segregation was one of the, one of the, the important ways that Spain governed all of its colonies. And the last form of concentration that I look at is the the general collection. In this specific case, I look at botanical gardens, which in certain ways seem to be pretty different because obviously botanical gardens collect plants rather than people. But nevertheless, there's still um, a technique of concentration and specifically of concentrating and managing life. Um, and I think that the, the botanical garden uh, helps us see how concentration became a kind of a scientific practice um, in the 18th century. So in, in a sense, um, even though it, it seems really different in a lot of ways than, the, say, the segregated neighborhood or the disciplinary institution or the centralized town, um, there's also a lot of continuity and resonance between uh, collections or botanical gardens as a technique of concentration and these other techniques. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Segment producer Cole Nelson is in conversation with Dan Nemser about his book, Infrastructures of Race, which shows that the techniques of Spanish colonial governance, such as creating centralized and segregated towns and disciplinary institutions like prisons and schools, produced racialized bodies and hence the continuing concepts of race. First, I think it's important if you can clarify how exactly you're approaching and how you're dealing with race uh, in the context of colonial Mexico um, conceptually, and then we can sort of talk about specifics of how these different forms of concentration are inscribing race infrastructurally. So I think the way that I think about race is really influenced, of course, by you know a, a lot of like critical race studies, a lot of this, the critical scholarship about race that's been produced um, uh, recently. But especially, um, I've found the the work of um, scholars who see their um, see their work as fitting into kind of a Marxist the Marxist tradition. Uh, so I'm thinking of people like uh, Barbara Fields, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, Nikhil Singh. Uh, Chris Chen, and, and obviously a lot of other people. But what I find really helpful about these uh, scholars' work is that they treat race as the product or outcome of material processes, right, or racialization processes. Um, so race isn't the starting point, right? We don't start by thinking about bodies or populations, which is often the way that a lot of people start to think about race. Um, rather, when you look at uh, racialization processes, you're trying to think about and pay attention to the material practices uh, that produce particular bodies or populations as racialized. So things like, say, forced labor or enslavement or tribute payments or, you know, genocidal practices of dispossession, but also spatial concentration um, can function as processes that generate 
the conditions in which groups are formed, groups that can be racialized. And um, in a way, I mean, th th this is similar to kind of a, I guess the, I, I guess it's a kind of a commonplace at this point that race is a social construction. Um, there's an argument about, you know, the social construction of race is, is a useful in intervention in the sense that it um, highlights that race has a history, uh, a history that we can study uh, or many histories that we can study, right? That race emerges in particular places and moments. Uh, and we can, we can trace those histories of how race emerged um, to figure out how and understand how race emerged out of something that was not race, right? And how race is reproduced over time. Um, but uh, there's a way in which um, some versions of social construction um, can take for granted the object onto which racial meanings are applied. So um, to give an example, uh, the Indian, the figure of the Indian in colonial Latin America, um, there's a lot of people who've written about um, the way that Indians were talked about in this period as, say, like lazy or irrational, right? And then there are other kind of uh, writers in colonial Latin America who kind of defend the Indians and say, no, they're not lazy, they're hardworking, or no, they're not irrational. They, they're fully rational human beings. And so there are people who kind of have studied the, these debates about like the stereotypes, the meanings or the associations that are applied to Indians as the kind of meat of what race is. But what these discussions kind of leave out or take for granted is the idea that there is such a thing as an Indian to which um, these associations or meanings can be attached, right? And so what, what I'm interested in is the way that those sort of objects, right, the Indian as such, are produced, the material processes of racialization that produce the conditions in which a category can emerge, the Indian, to which attributes or meanings or associations can be applied. It's time for a break. This is Phantasmas, or Ghosts, off of Kutan by Adrian Terrasas Gonzalez. More on forms of concentration with Dan Nemser, author of Infrastructures of Race, when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Forms of Concentration. Episode producer Cole Nelson is speaking with Dan Nemser, author of Infrastructures of Race, which takes colonial Mexico as its subject. In this segment, Nemser discusses the ways people can become racialized and identify themselves through those categories. These are the infrastructures that produce race. Nemser also discusses the theoretical work of Joshua Clover on how the modes of capital production produce distinct modes of protest and revolt, like riots and strikes. Within the the social construction framework um, that identifies sort of a historical um, creation and development of race, you're looking at how it actually produces subjectivities that that are lived um, and inscribed by these various material processes of concentration and these processes of racialization. Yeah, exactly. So, like, the question would be, you know, how is it that um, particular forms of grouping bodies or populations together uh, produce the conditions in which both categories can be imposed on people, right? Racial categories or racialized, racializing categories can be imposed on people, but also produce the conditions in which people may come to inhabit those categories as kind of lived subjectivities. This is where uh, racialized subjectivities are so important because they are the, the product of infrastructural enforcement and kind of infrastructural manifestation. Um, so can you give a little more um, voice to the importance of infrastructure in studying race? So yeah, infrastructure is um, at, has become a kind of a hot topic uh, in a lot of um, like social science and humanities disciplines recently. So, uh, you know, rather than studying infrastructure in a kind of a technical way, um, like, you know, how do you build a bridge that doesn't fall down? Critics have started to think about infrastructure more conceptually as conceptually interesting, right? And sort of think about uh, the concept as a, the kind of material substrate that enables um, the, the functioning of everyday life. It's kind of like the enabling ground. Um, and so in that sense, infrastructure uh, facilitates certain kinds of practices or um, activities or ways of living, right? Um, and also tends to impede other practices. Um, and one of the things that is, I think, interesting about infrastructure and that a lot of these critics who have started to kind of talk about it um, have picked up on and, and, and tried to um, think through is the way that infrastructures can tend to fade into the background. They can tend to be normalized um, or naturalized. So you know, there's a kind of a common expression that you only notice infrastructure when it breaks. In other words, when you're, when you go into your house and you turn on the water to wash your hands after you've been outside, so you don't get coronavirus, you know, if you turn on the water and it, and it works, you aren't thinking about all the pipes um, that connect your house to the city water lines to the water treatment facility and all that stuff in the background that makes that water appear when you turn on the faucet. But when the faucet doesn't work, that's when you all of a sudden are reminded of this kind of like material assemblage that you're tied into. And so there's a way in which all kinds of infrastructure, whether they're, uh, you know, these pipes, electric, electrical grid, 
roads, uh, you know, essentially everything, the, condi- the material conditions of modern life um, can fade into the background to the point that we don't really think about it as being produced or constructed. Rather, it's just kind of the way things are, right? And similarly, the practices that those infrastructures facilitate or enable um, can come to appear as just the way things are. This is just how people live, right? Rather than being practices that are made possible by this built environment that we've constructed. Now, obviously, not everybody experiences infrastructure in the same way. The experience of infrastructure or the engagement with infrastructure is, re- is relational. Uh, so, for example, the plumber who comes to fix the water pipe has a different experience. You know, that, that's their object of attention rather than the thing that fades into the background. Um, in the book, I talk about uh, the indigenous people who were forced to work by, uh, in Mexico City by cleaning the, the city's canals. Um, there was an extensive canal system because Mexico City was built on a lake. And so uh, a lot of indigenous people who had to perform forced labor for the colonial state had to clean the waste out of the canals. And other indigenous people were conscripted to dig tunnels and new canals to try to drain those lakes to prevent flooding. So the people whose you know, lives revolved around forced labor building infrastructure, obviously for them, infrastructure doesn't fade into the background. It's very much front and center. Similarly, like infrastructure can produce for people who do engage with infrastructure in a way that in which it fades into the background and thinking about practices that it, that it enables, it can help to produce subjectivities, right? Like if you do certain things over and over again, you act certain way in certain ways over and over again, um, those ways of being can, can become normalized. And so in a way, um, infrastructures, these relational infrastructures can produce different forms of groupness which I kind of want to argue it can be a basis for race. Another thing that's interesting about infrastructure is that it endures over time. And so there's a, one of the kind of like really important critics uh, who, who was one of the ones who kind of first wrote about infrastructure in this kind of critical way um, named Susan Lee Starr writes that uh, infrastructures are built over an installed base. So she gives an example of um, fiber optics cables that follow a train track or a railroad line. And so another reason why infrastructure is, is useful conceptually is because it helps us think materially about how structures of domination might endure or be re- reproduced over time, even as new technologies emerge or political uh, conditions change, say like Mexico gains independence from Spain, for example. If infrastructures continue to, to shape how so- society is governed, um, there could be a lot of continuities at the material level of domination. And so in this sense, I guess, stepping back, you know, if the argument that I want to make is that infrastructures produce race um, and that those, uh, those racialized groupings can endure over time, it's also the case that race can function infrastructurally. In other words, as an enabling substrate for, say, uh, capital accumulation, right? Racial capitalism. Uh, benefits from race by using workers in particular ways uh, to extract super profits. And so infrastructures produce race, but also race can function infrastructurally in that sense as well.
You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Segment producer Cole Nelson is in conversation with Dan Nemser about his book, Infrastructures of Race, which shows that the techniques of Spanish colonial governance, such as creating centralized and segregated towns and disciplinary institutions like prisons and schools, produced racialized bodies and hence the continuing concepts of race. Touching on what you said earlier on the kind of often used phrase regarding infrastructures that you only notice them when they break down or when they don't function in how they're they're meant to. I'm interested to sort of turn to a specific historical instance that you look at in your book, the Corn Riots of 1692. I think it's June 8, 1692. Um, and uh, if, if you can provide us quickly with a little, a brief historical sketch of the corn riots, and you make a point of emphasizing the use of riot as opposed to something like uprising or rebellion, where other historians have detailed this historical moment as an uprising or rebellion. And then we can sort of talk about the the infrastructural underpinnings of this moment, how it indicates a breakdown, and why this is a particularly crucial moment to study in terms of understanding the infrastructure of race in this moment. So the 1692 uh, riot is basically a moment when the tens of thousands of members of Mexico City's urban, mostly indigenous underclass rose up and looted the entire kind of like central market of Mexico City, destroyed many of the buildings around the center, uh, including the Viceroy's Palace. Um, this is, if you've ever been to Mexico City, the sort of central plaza is called the Zócalo. And that whole massive plaza, which was at the time, it was filled with like market stalls. Um, and the buildings around it were the kind of, you know, a lot of the important sites of government and palaces where the, you know, most important people in colonial Mexican society lived. And so all of that stuff was was burned down. And they're, they're basically... Spanish authorities in the one of the most important cities in the Spanish Empire uh, lost control entirely of the city for a day. It was a major shock to the system, to the colonial system. And I guess it's important to, um, to contextualize the riot. Basically, at the end of the 17th century, um, the Spanish Empire has sort of been in decline for a while now. Uh, the, Spain was the dominant power in Europe during the long 16th century, but by the middle of the 17th century, it had kind of been displaced by um, the Dutch. And so in, the, in the, the, the second half of the 17th century, I mean, there's this kind of like sustained, gradual decline in the capacity of the Spanish Empire to kind of protect uh, its territories, which were dispersed over the entire world. By the end of the 17th century, in 1692, you know, there's there's this been this kind of enduring uh, crisis where Spain hasn't been able to, um, or has hasn't been able to kind of like mobilize the resources to protect uh, its territories across the world. Um, and the the riot uh, could be situated in that context, and it's also situated in the context of um, there was a. Uh, sort of a natural disaster, right? Um, there was really heavy rains uh, that flooded Mexico City and also destroyed a lot of the food crop. Um, and so 
in the the year that followed, there was a kind of a food shortage, really really significant food shortages in Mexico City, which were the kind of immediate spark for the riot. Obviously, as I think a lot of people are talking about and thinking about today in the context of coronavirus, uh, we know that there's no such thing as a natural disaster, or rather, you know, the expression of disasters have everything to do with how societies are organized. Um, so it's not so much that there was flooding or that there was heavy rains that caused the riot, you know, but rather the way that the distribution of food, for example, or the way that um, the infrastructure of Mexico City caused flooding to happen in certain places um, made certain populations vulnerable that um, exacerbated the impacts of the crisis. In terms of uh, the language of riots versus uprisings, um, there, there's a way in which um, the language of riots can be and has been used to kind of delegitimize the political character of um, these kinds of these kinds of conflicts, right, or popular mobilizations. Um, if you call it a riot, it's not, it's an unthinking kind of like response to something, to, to some kind of external stimulus. And I think one way that people have responded to that has been to claim the language of um, like rebellions, for example. So like uh, people, people have referred to this not so much as a, as a riot, but a rebellion. And I mean, it happens in other, other cases as well, like, uh, you know, the, the 1967 Detroit riots. A lot of people here call them the, the, the Great Rebellion. But in recent years, there's been a lot of really interesting and helpful work done on riots because it's kind of like a, a, a form of conflict, a form of struggle that we've been seeing, you know, more and more um, recently. And I've found the work of Joshua Clover, uh, whose book Riot Strike Riot um, uh, is really helpful uh, for thinking about this, um, well, riots in general, but I found it really helpful for thinking about 1692. Um, and what Clover does is he kind of traces this long history of capitalism into um, different phases, three different phases, uh, where uh, either circulation or production um, is the sort of leading edge of capital accumulation. Um, and so he says, like, in the early modern period, uh, long distance trade was kind of the place where most accumulation was happening. So it's a, a period in which circulation is dominant. Then, you know, the Industrial Revolution and the Golden Age of Manufacturing is a period when production um, is dominant. And then now, since the 1970s, you know, where we've seen the rise of logistics, for example, uh, once again, circulation is dominant. And he argues that in, in each of these phases, in a circulation phase or production phase, it, it would make sense that the sort of mode of class, the mode that class struggle would take in those contexts would be uh, the struggles in the spheres where accumulation is happening. So in a circulation phase, you would tend to find circulation struggles, which is what he calls riots. Um, whereas in a production phase, you would tend to find, you know, strikes, for example, which are production struggles. Uh, I think this framework has been really helpful for me for thinking about um, riots in, as, a, as a particular form of struggle, thinking about the reasons that riots might happen versus instead of other kinds of, of struggle. Um, and how to understand them in terms of the sort of the the, the context uh, where uh, they in which they occur. It's time for another break. This is Oda al Viento, or Ode to the Wind, another track off of Adrian Terrazas Gonzalez's 2012 release Kutan. 
When we return, Dan Nemser talks about a massive one-day riot that created an administrative category of control, the capable Creole. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment, author Dan Nemser highlights the control structures developed in the wake of a massive food riot that took place on June 8, 1692, specifically how a racialized category is constructed, put into practice, and inhabited, in this case, the capable Creole. Then we'll turn, perhaps surprisingly, to botany and the way scientific practice in one field is grafted onto others. Experiments on plants become theories about humans. I'd like to point to a specific passage in your book where you're discussing the the corn riots and sort of how this was a moment of transition in the infrastructural kind of enforcement of of segregation in Mexico City. Um, You note that this racial project thus aimed not to undermine Spanish rule, but to shore it up by placing the administration of empire in the hands of capable Creoles who would manage and control the indigenous and mixed race population far more effectively than the traditional structures of authority. Structures that, as the riot had demonstrated, were at this point completely exhausted. And so then you sort of detail how the the prior forms of distinct segregation between the surrounding barrios and the the city center um, shift from an expression of sovereign power to a more biopolitical uh, instantiation of of segregated forms. I was wondering if you can talk about this transition, um, how this this moment sort of uh, marks this particular transition and and what that means in the broader context of um, forms of concentration in colonial Mexico. This chapter in the book is about, is focused on segregation. And as I mentioned before, um, Spanish colonial rule depended on, or was organized around a kind of principle or policy of separation or segregation, which from the early 16th century on um, intended to keep separate the indigenous population from everybody else. So Spanish governance was, Spanish rule was organized into kind of, they called them two republics, the Republic of Indians and the Republic of Spaniards. Although the Republic of Spaniards didn't contain just Spaniards, it contained everybody who was not Indian. Um, And each of these republics had certain uh, institutions that corresponded to them. Um, They had certain rights and responsibilities, certain laws applied to them in ways that that didn't apply to other, the other republic. 
um, and so on. And they also had a kind of a spatial expression. So um, there were towns in which only Indians were supposed to live. Uh, and, you know, Spaniards were not supposed to own houses in those towns. Similarly, uh, in Mexico City, um, the center of the city was supposed to be uh, for non-Indians. It was, you know, su supposed to, supposedly the Spanish center of the city. Uh, Indians weren't supposed to live there. Um, and the Indians instead were supposed to live in these kind of uh, uh, districts, barrios that surrounded the center. If you've ever been to Mexico City, like the basically what they call the Centro Historico, the, the historic center of the city, was the area where the Spanish were supposed to live. Um, and the stuff outside of that was supposed to be these Indian um, districts. So that had been set up in, you know, early, in the early 16th century. By the end of the 17th century, um, this model was kind of coming into crisis because there were, essentially, there were a lot of indigenous people uh, who were moving to the center of the city and who were living in the center of the city because that's where they worked, whether they were working in, in Spanish houses, right, as domestic uh, servants, or whether they were working in, you know, um, uh, obrajes, which were kind of like textile factories, uh, or other, you know, work, work kind of production sites um, in the center of town. That was where their, their jobs were located. And so more and more, there was this kind of movement to, of, of indigenous people from that out, that the, the districts on the outside to the, to the center of the city. Um, and one of the big explanations, so obviously this massive riot uh, made the Spanish authorities, uh, they were really freaked out about this. And they, 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 tried to, they were trying to figure out, you know, what could have caused this to happen in order to kind of figure out how to prevent it in the future. And so they ended up blaming um, a number of things, but uh, they didn't blame the food shortages. <laughs> um, they blamed uh, one of the things. One of the main things that they blamed was that was mixture, right? They they blamed that the the Indians who had moved to the center of of the city uh, had produced this kind of dangerous mixture that had created the conditions in which the the riot could occur. And um, so the response to that dangerous mixture was to once again impose some sort of segregation onto the city. Different uh, members of the kind of colonial elite proposed different versions of segregation. And so part of what this chapter is about is kind of tracking uh, the debates about what segregation would mean. Whether, for example, um, the essentially the white population, right, which was a mixture of people from Spain and uh, descendants of Spaniards, but who were born in the Americas, which were known as Creoles, um, whether they should be the only ones who would be allowed to live in the center. In other words, and, and everybody else kind of sent out to the peripheries. That would include the black population, the mixed race population, the indigenous population, or whether um, it was the Indian districts that should be purified and all of the non-Indians who were living there should be forced to move to the center of the city. And in the end, what happened was the there was a kind of an attempt to impose a segregation once again and force um, all of the indigenous people to move back from the center to their to their district. But it wasn't really um, a sustainable solution. And what ended up really happening was there was a kind of a development of new forms of tracking people, even those who had moved out of their uh, their their districts. Um, and these uh, 
the, the technique had to do with, um, they're called padrones. They're sort of like early censuses that were done by um, the parish priests, which emerged as a kind of a way to keep track, for the priests to keep track of their parishioners uh, who had, were no longer living in, in the district, in, in the parish itself. And obviously they had a kind of a, a monetary interest in this, right? They wanted to be able to keep track of their parishioners because they, they, they generated revenue off of that. Um, but it also ended up providing the colonial state with a way of keeping track of populations, even when the old version of segregation, which was really tied to a kind of a sovereign model of government, was entering into crisis, uh, into a contradiction with this kind of emerging economic order that saw so many uh, so many people moving to the center of, of Mexico City in order to take jobs there. So in other words, these like censuses, this kind of emergent bi- biopolitical technique that was introduced by members of the church, right, um, ends up becoming a kind of technique that the colonial state would take up as a way of governing populations, even when they left the districts that they were supposed to live in. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Segment producer Cole Nelson is in conversation with Dan Nemser about his book, Infrastructures of Race, which shows that the techniques of Spanish colonial governance, such as creating centralized and segregated towns and disciplinary institutions like prisons and schools, produced racialized bodies, and hence the continuing concepts of race. And it... it becomes especially clear and and explicitly in your conversation on uh, botany um, that these sort of pseudoscientific practices of abstraction, city planning, uh, population management, uh, cartography, and um, other other sort of forms of measurement and segmentation of of space more generally um, become instrumentalized in this in this racialization process. Um, and so within within that sort of framework, can can you discuss botany as as a practice that um, that lent itself to to this racial project of of the colonial state? I think the botanical garden uh, is a useful way to track how concentration becomes a kind of a scientific technique, right? Um, there's a there's there's a there's a way in which the botanical garden, which again is not aiming to concentrate bodies of people, but it is aiming to concentrate and kind of manage life, right? Um, And it gives us a good way to think about um, or to see how the techniques of concentration uh, are emerging or come come into a relation with with science, right? In the context of the enlightenment in the 18th century. So on the one hand, the botanical garden highlights how spaces of concentration come to be mediated by scientific forms of management, like uh, precise calculation, like you were talking about, but also experimentation, right? You could say, oh, maybe this way of concentrating plants will work better, uh, will, will help them survive better than this other way, right? And so you can, you can do experiments, you can run experiments um, about, about the, the, the plants that you're bringing into the, the, the garden. And so in that sense, um, not only is uh, concentration kind of like the, the concentrated spaces, the architectures of concentration become kind of regulated by 
scientific practices, but also concentration becomes a kind of a technique, a scientific technique, right? Uh, one of the tools that scientists have uh, in order to, you know, develop or to build, to generate new knowledge about the world. And specifically, what I talk about in this last chapter uh, about the botanical garden is a kind of an emergence of an idea about how uh, environmental conditions um, shape the bodies or the life on which they act. Um, and there's a lot of uh, resonance between the way that um, Spanish scientists or Sp Mexican colonial Mexican or Spanish colonial scientists um, talk about the effects of environment on human bodies and the effects of environment on plant bodies. Uh, you know, just thinking about, you know, the, the idea that, you know, it's the sun that makes skin, that, that makes skin darker, right? And so there are enlightenment scientists uh, in France and, and other parts of the world who suggest, you know, well, if we could, uh, black people are black because they live under a really hot sun. And if we could take them and enclose them in a room in Denmark, um, we could figure out how many generations it would take for them to become white again. Um, and obviously that's, it's obviously a form of <laughs> racial terror, right? Totally dependent on uh, the slave trade, right? It's a sort of form of scientific knowledge is totally dependent on slavery and the slave trade. But it's also Im impracticable in, in scientific terms. And in a way, the kind of experimentation with plants, uh, which take uh, a much shorter time to display changes due to their environment, seem to offer a way to think about race, a, a more effective uh, way to think about and learn about um, race by studying the effect of environmental factors on life. And in this sense, uh, there's, a, there's a way of thinking about race, a, a different way of thinking about race that comes from the Brazilian critic, um, Denise Ferreira Silva, who talks about race as the kind of difference between those bodies that are affectable, that are affectable in, in the sense that they're, they're shaped by external determination, whether it's natural processes like environment or colonialism, for example. And on the other hand, those bodies that are kind of autonomous, uh, or she calls it transparent, those, those bodies that, that are not affected by external determination. Um, Silva uh, explores how race is not really just only about fixed bodies, which is something that a lot of critics um, assume, that it's when bodies become uh, fixed, when people start to imagine bodies as fixed, that race as a concept begins to emerge. Rather, she shows how some bodies are always assumed to be fixed and other bodies are always assumed to be uh, affectable or moldable, changeable. Um, and the study of how the external fact, how, how external factors um, shape those bodies is essentially ends up being a study of race. It's time for our final break. This is Untitled, another from Adrian Terrazas Gonzalez, off of Kutan. Stay with us for more on the infrastructures of race with Dan Nemser when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. Episode producer Cole Nelson is in conversation with Dan Nemser, author of Infrastructures of Race, Concentration, and Biopolitics in Colonial Mexico, published by the University of Texas Press. In this final segment, Karl Marx's theory of primitive accumulation, how capitalism materializes through dispossession, but that dispossession is forgotten, becomes the basis for Nemser's primitive racialization, wherein identifiable infrastructures have created racial categories, but those underpinnings have also been forgotten. So to sort of shift gears a little bit and position the conversation around your epilogue, the epilogue to your book, where you introduce the concept of primitive racialization, I was wondering if you can sort of give give a little depth to that, the, the concept that you introduce, how it sort of extends from um, Marx's notion of primitive accumulation tied to the development of a capitalist mode of production and sort of the understanding of that historical development but how you then go beyond this by introducing the, a recognition of the constitution of subjects, of racialized subjects, um, how its sort of infrastructural component allows us to, as you say, unforget the foundational violence of racial infrastructures. Marx's discussion of uh, primitive accumulation, I think is, is really important, especially for uh, folks like me who, who are interested in um, the early modern and, and especially the colonial period, because it tries to grapple with the, the essentially it tries to grapple with transition, right? How does uh, capitalism emerge out of something that's not capitalism? Basically, Marx argues that capitalism, he's, it's a historical mode of production, right? That emerges out of something different, feudalism, and that it can't emerge out of its own, from its own sort of laws of motion. It has to emerge out of something different. And he argues that it emerges out of these sort of violent processes of dispossession that uh, produce, on the one hand, that 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 produce, on the one hand, uh, a kind of population that doesn't have any access to the means of production or the means of subsistence. The maybe peasants who used to live on the land, but who now don't have access to that to that land or to the commons, and instead, in order to survive, they have to take jobs in factories and work for a wage. And on the other hand, primitive accumulation produces a class of people, capitalists, who have access to a lot of capital that they can then use to bring together those, the labor power, higher labor power, and also other kind of materials, right, to invest in a kind of a production process. So for Marx, there's a kind of, capitalism has violent origins. And in uh, the first volume of Capital, Marx, this is one of the places where Marx talks a lot about colonialism. He says that the colonization of the Americas um, and the slave trade were the, some of the, the, the chief moments of primitive accumulation that set capitalism in motion. On the one hand, I, I think uh, what's important about that is that, again, the question is, how does capitalism emerge out of something that's not capitalism? And thinking about those violent foundations also helps us sort of maintain a horizon of political possibility that uh, you know, capitalism isn't just the way things are. It's a historical system that can end, right? Things haven't always been this way. Now, there's uh, a parallel to 
the way that I talk about race in the book as well. And that's where I kind of come to this concept of primitive racialization. Um, in one sense, uh, as kind of a direct historical sense, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, in, this, in this discussion of primitive, primitive accumulation, Marx talks about colonization, enslavement, um, and, and these, these kind of, these, pro these violent processes that are very much tangled up with racialized populations. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Segment producer Cole Nelson is in conversation with Dan Nemser about his book, Infrastructures of Race, which shows that the techniques of Spanish colonial governance, such as creating centralized and segregated towns and disciplinary institutions like prisons and schools, produced racialized bodies, and hence the continuing concepts of race. Marxist critics like Silvia Federici take that argument a step further and say it's not only that primitive accumulation targets racialized bodies, indigenous people in the Americas, black people in Africa. Um, it's that, uh, which, which is kind of what Marx, you know, seems to suggest. It's that primitive accumulation actually produces race um, as part of its process of dispossession in the same way that for Federici, primitive accumulation produces gender by dispossessing um, women of their autonomy over their own bodies and producing them as a kind of a naturalized, uh, uh, a natural source of children, essentially. So if we accept Federici's argument, then primitive accumulation produces race uh, as part of its process, general process of dispossession that includes, you know, the, the creating the sort of conditions for capitalism to take place. So there's a historical argument about that, about primitive accumulation and sort of racialization or primitive racialization. But there's another piece of it, which I think is um, also important, which is simply that um, uh, if capitalism has these violent origins that produced capitalism out of something that wasn't capitalism, there's actually a, really, a lot of similarity there with um, the way that race is produced, right? If we accept that, as I've been saying uh, that race is the product of material processes of racialization rather than being something that inheres in bodies or populations to begin with. Um, then we also have to think about how a racial way of organizing humanity was produced out of something that was not a racial way of you know, imagining humanity. And uh, in the same way that um, capitalism can come to feel normalized, can come to seem just like the way, like the way things are. Um, they're just natural laws that humans, and, that humans sort of obey because of the way they are. Um, race can come to seem naturalized as well. That it, you know, once we start saying, assuming that race is part of bodies, is, is, inheres in bodies, um, that there are people who fall into different groups, right? Whether, whatever we take those associations, the associations that those groups have, the meanings that those that those categories have, whatever we take those meanings and associations to be, um, we still take for granted that there are such things as groups that have racial identities, right? And what primitive racialization forces us to grapple with is is are the violent foundations of those groups, those categories that can come to be racialized, um, and that 
and and for whom you know racial meanings and attributes to whom racial meanings and attributes can be attached and and changed and altered um, over over time. So in the same way that primitive accumulation forces us to think about you know the the violent origins of the capitalist mode of production, how that emerged out of something different, um, primitive racialization uh, forces us to grapple with how race emerged out of something that was not race, and also a kind of a, a political horizon in which race as a category of domination can be abolished. That's our show. We'll close with Alba, or Sunrise. One last track off of Adrian Tarazas Gonzalez's 2012 release, Kutan. Thanks to Dan Nemser for joining us to illuminate so much about today's world via the lens of 17th century colonial Mexico. If you get a chance, listen to this one again. It explains our world, how humans have been made to inhabit identities born of control systems for empire. The past, as has been said, is prologue. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cole Nelson produced Forms of Concentration with assistance from Mia Beach. Sean Milligan edited today's program. Cade Young is executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.